So we're going to finish Made for More tonight and then embark on an epic journey through Job, which is going to be quite a uh, fascinating undertaking. It's lots and lots of uh, amazing and wonderful hidden gems in the book of Job that we will have the opportunity to uncover over a long span of weeks. We won't do that in a hurry. It'll be Job as the Old Testament equivalent to Hebrews when it comes to teaching through it. You can't get in a hurry. And uh, although in the Old Testament you can take bigger chunks of Scripture, still uh, it's going to be really challenging and wonderful, and I'm looking forward to it. All right, made for more 10. So Exodus 2017, one of the longest of the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. I would suspect that this is not the place that you would have expected the Ten Commandments to end. Doesn't seem like a likely place to conclude this amazing uh, section of Scripture where God gives us these ten principles to live by that will enhance our lives, will build community, will uh, cause us to flourish in the land. And yet here, uh, not only is it an odd place to end, seemingly, but uh, it's, uh, it's very descriptive. Again, as we've seen before, uh, there's a multitude, I want to say tonight, there's a lot of wonderful hidden gems within this passage. So as we begin, there we go. The first step in understanding the Tenth Commandment is we must have a definition of the word covet. Because part of the problem uh, in most people's <clears throat> misunderstanding of this commandment is they have a wrong idea of the word covet. Now, the question is, is covet synonymous with envy? Think about the way most people think about the word covet. And think about the way you think of envy. Now, the word envy is ill will toward another, including the desire to deprive someone of any perceived advantage. See, envy says, if I can't have it, no one can. But to covet is not the same as to envy. They're different. And here's why this is important. Because the object is very critical in this understanding. You see, envy is directed at the owner. Covetous, covetousness is directed towards the property. 
And this is what delineates the difference. And it's very important that we understand this idea of what to covet means. Now, the Jews have always had a very uh, distinct understanding of the word covet and even today maintain the same understanding. For example, they would rely heavily on Deuteronomy 7, where in verse 25 it says, You shall not burn carved images to their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor make take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it and be an abomination to the Lord. That's a perfect example of a Jewish understanding of the word covet. And as translated a lot of times into a lot of modern people's understanding. They believe that guilt, the guilt of covetousness was present only when a person followed through and took possession of that which they desired. But if this were the case, I mean, it can't be the case. It just simply can't be. Mainly because if it were the case, then to covet would just be repetitive. It would just repeat the commandment, thou shalt not steal. And obviously we know it's not repetitive. A better understanding of the word covet would be in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21, where the Scripture says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not desire your neighbor's house. So you should put a circle around the word desire. Now in that rendering of this passage, you have a much more clear understanding of what the Scripture is talking about. You see... To covet has everything to do with desire. In order to understand covetousness, you have to understand desire. Which again makes this a very sinister um, commandment or a very sinister sin to break this commandment. Now... Here's why. Because, you see, we oftentimes think, now you're thinking to yourself, now nah, I understand, I've always understood covetousness with desire, okay. Most of us have always also understood that it was in the New Testament where Jesus brought the law sort of uh, out of action into our hearts. When he said, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you commit adultery. If you, you know, have anger towards somebody, you murder, right? But here you have an example of an instance in the law where can you see me desire? Can I see you desire? This is a completely invisible sin in the Old Testament. We're not talking about the New Testament. We're talking about in the way it's written. You can't see that. How do you know that? Notice, just think back of all the Ten Commandments and think about how they all have outward manifestations. Here we have a very sinister sin that happens in our heart that nobody knows that we <clears throat> do. And, and I 
would always refer to the 10th commandment as the killer commandment. This is the killer commandment. And I don't mean that in a good way. I mean that in a bad way. Like if you're going to get slayed by one of these commandments, this is the sword that's going to chop you to smithereens. And it probably gets the least amount of traction when people are talking about the Ten Commandments. Coveting is about what you want. It's totally in your heart. And if you think about it, I can violate this sin without ever doing anything. So, for example, what is the... I can desire things that others have without wanting to steal it from them, right? Well, let's see. Well, that's what it's supposed to be. So, you can desire things that other people have without wanting to steal it from them. See, I can want that. I can desire it. But I don't want to steal it. I just want it. And I'm 100% guilty of this commandment, but I haven't done anything except just wanted something in my heart. And so what is the purpose behind God's specificity in this 10th commandment? Notice all of this detail that God gives us. See, this would be a good, this is a good, you know, moment where if we were in D group right now, this is where I would say, okay, now let's read this. And I would explain to you, when you're reading the Bible and you come to something that is, has a bunch of detail or repetition or groups things together, you should stop and pay close attention to that. In other words, we, we said, thou shalt not steal. I mean, we've spent several weeks in this series on tiny little sentences, four words. Now, all of a sudden, it doesn't say thou shalt not covet. Why do we have all the descriptives? Why do we have all this information? Your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, or anything in your of your neighbor's. What, what is that about? See, that right there should just be a put the brakes on moment. Hmm. Something's up. To leave no room for omission, here's what we got to do. we got to clarify the meaning of anything. So at the end of Exodus 20, 17, you could circle the word anything, nor anything that is your neighbor's, anything. Now, I also find it fascinating. There's a lot of things about this I find fascinating, one of which is, is that all of these words are in the singular, in the original language. And you say, well, what difference does that make? Well, it makes a lot of difference, and here's why. Because when the Scripture says that you, you shouldn't covet your neighbor's male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey, or it's not indicating that he has many 
It's one, which again is noteworthy because it's telling you that we would assume that we would covet something that someone wealthy had, someone with great possessions has. And what the Bible's trying to tell us is, oh no, you can, you can violate this commandment with anybody. So some little poor guy that has one donkey and one ox and one servant, or maybe he just has one donkey, and you desire the donkey. So it's not an issue of how much somebody has. All the Now think about this. All these possessions that are listed in this commandment are good things to desire. Did you notice that? They're all positive things. They're all healthy things. In other words, notice it's not saying. Now, again, because let's use the word desire because it helps us understand better. Wouldn't a good commandment be? Well, you shouldn't desire to, and then we should put some bad habits in there. You shouldn't desire. You shouldn't, if we're going to list out things we shouldn't desire, well, we shouldn't desire. We shouldn't desire to smoke cigarettes. It's a bad habit. Right? We got all good things. These are all wonderful, good gifts. A house, a wife. Don't get tangled up in the male servant, female servant. These aren't negative things. These are bond servants who love their job, who uh, in the Old Testament, these servants would have when been released from their servitude, would have never left. They, they, it was like, I always equate it to, it's like having a government job today. You got job security. Everything's taken care of. Not negative. Good. And notice this. They're all listed in descending order of value. Now, before you ladies in here want to give me the stink eye, let's just make sure that we're clear. Jesus was the one that elevated women. In the Old Testament, women didn't have rights. They were more like property. In every instance, your house would have been seen more valuable than your wife. It was Jesus that flipped the script upside down. Jesus was the one that said, no, we're different but equal. He was the one. But nonetheless, this is in descending value. So you have house, then you have wife, then you have servants, then you have animals. So why would God forbid desiring good things? That's the question. Why would he forbid desiring good things? So if a, if a single person, if a young man desires to have a house so that he can own his own house, so that he can one day be married and raise his family, and is that a bad thing? Is it a bad thing for a single person to desire to be married? Are any of these things bad to desire? And the answer is no. 
So is God forbidding the desiring of these things? And the answer to that is, well, no, he doesn't. That's not at all what's happening here. So now we'll start to unravel why this is such a killer commandment. And that's not just my opinion. I'm just telling you because the Bible teaches that. I'm going to show you in a minute. What is being forbidden here? To covet is to desire. These are all good things. We shouldn't covet them. So what is going on? God is forbidding ungoverned desire. Do you know what ungoverned desire is? Well, you do. Maybe you don't define it that way, but you live in a sea of it. Ungoverned desire is wanting something, desiring something at an unhealthy level. It is an unhealthy, it's when you want something way more than you should. Which turns good things into bad things. Which turns healthy things into unhealthy things. Which turns productive things into unproductive things. Which flips things that are meant to be a blessing into curses in people's lives. And we are surrounded, we live in a culture that exists Literally on ungoverned desires. Galatians chapter 5, the scripture says that those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with the passions and desires of it. So we've crucified those. You see, the, the flesh desires in an ungoverned way. The spirit desires in a way that is consistent with God's priorities. And so, not all desires that are within you are the same. You have to check them. You have to assess them. You have to tell the difference because you may be desiring, you need to know the difference between desiring something in the flesh and desiring it in the spirit. And the scripture would be the answer to that because it would give you the proper context in which to desire that thing. See, at issue here is a warning against letting our desire for something good consume our heart. You see, <clears throat> this is the way it works. If, if, we could, if we could make it, if there was like a, you know... If there was some kind of little, you know, spiritual uh, gauge that w popped up over our shoulder when we were desiring something. So we desire something good and we, we begin to desire it and then our desire for it grows, right? So in a healthy way. In other words, let's just use, since we're talking about uh, our neighbor's wife, let's use marriage. So a young man, I mean a young boy even desires one day to be married. Is that bad? No, that's good. And that's a very low desire. 
He wants to someday get married. It's not something he thinks a lot about. He knows he's not ready for that. It's something way off in the future. But as he grows older, as he gets closer to manhood, he begins to think about that more. And that desire begins to come up. And that's good. That's a good desire. And it grows and it grows and it grows. But there's a point at which if the desire crosses a point, that good, healthy desire now becomes unhealthy. It becomes destructive. It becomes bad. And the question is, what's the point? And there is a point. For all of us, all of our desires, there is a point at which if we supersede that point, it now becomes highly problematic in our lives. And you have to know the point because here's the thing. Nobody else knows the degree to which you desire something. All of this is occurring between your ears. So what's the point? How do you do that? How do you gauge that? How does a prohibition of coveting protect community? How does it do that? See, all of these commandments are designed to show us that we were made for more. They're designed to not only enhance our personal lives, but to enhance our community to enhance us together as a people of God. And so how does it how does this promote community? And again, every week I say this and every week I give the same answer and then I explain how it's unique to this. But they preserve life by preserving life. Now how is that? Well it's very simple. Think about what covenanting does in community. Coveting sees others as obstacles to the possession that we want or desire. You see, when we desire something at an unhealthy level, the person who possesses that thing is an obstacle to us getting it. See, the reason I don't have it is because you have it. Someone else has it. And so what I need to do is get it away from you so that I can have it. So in order for me to have it, you won't have it which does not promote community and does not promote life and is not honoring or pleasing to God and clearly has crossed the line where desire has now become havoc. Now here's why God does this. He, he lists these ordinary things. He understands that the things that we see every day, they're the things that get us in trouble. Now, do you know why that is? It's so elementary if you really just think about it. You could, I mean, this is the kind of uh, passage that you could just spend weeks just meditating on. Why is this the case? Think about the things that you, areas of your life where you've struggled with ungoverned desire, where you've wanted something and you've wanted it too bad. You know what they are? They're things that you could potentially get. You're not, you're not, you don't have ungoverned desire for something you, you're never going to get. Right? You're not going to get consumed with something that you're not going to have. It's something that in your mind, so apart from some mental health condition, those are going to be the things that we see every day, right? Yes. 
So what we're going to see things, we're going to, we're going to, and those things we're going to want, they're going to be things. And look at the way the verse is laid out. They're going to be things that are in close proximity to us. That there's an indication that, have you ever thought about this? The things that we're going to struggle with, with desire, are things that we see on a regular basis, repetitively. So, when a man desires another man's wife, or a woman desires another woman's husband, does that happen when the man's driving down the street and sees a woman that he's never seen before one time, and then all of a sudden he's obsessed with? No. It happens when he sees her every day. When he works with her, when he comes in contact with her. You see, it's the things that you contact with every day. This is why it's this proximity. Now, understand in digital Babylon, we got a whole new problem because now, I mean, I could theoretically see something in China every day electronically. But again, I'm not going to get consumed with getting something that I can't get to. Or get it to me. It's going to be the great danger are the things that are just around us every day. The ordinary things. That's what eats us alive. And here's the thing. Most people don't even know that this is a problem. This is the killer commandment. I'm telling you. It's the killer commandment. I'll give you two examples from the New Testament. All right, example one. Consider uh, the familiar passage of the rich young ruler. There's Jesus. A man comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, if there's ever an evangelistic opportunity on a silver platter, here you go. Right? This guy waltzes up. He asked the author of salvation, how do I get salvation? The one who, who brought new birth, how do I get new birth? Here we go. If ever there was a slam dunk, it was right here. Now think about the nuances of what's about to happen. Jesus says to him, well, you need to keep the commandments. And Jesus lists them. He says, well, you shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't commit murder. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't bear false witness. You should honor your mother and your father. And the man says, oh, well, I've done all that since my youth. I'm good. Now, understand who this man is talking to. Never is a word spoken by Jesus that is not so spot on, so perfectly orchestrated. The setup here is like the most masterful setup of all times. Jesus lays out all the commandments except for one. 
he leaves this one off. And then the man says, well, I've done all that since my youth. I'm good. This is amazing. And then Jesus says, there's one more thing. Go sell all you have and give it to the poor. That's this commandment. And like a lightning bolt from heaven, it just blasts the heart of this guy into smithereens and he walks away sorrowful. This guy, this guy has it all. This guy has religion down pat. I mean, he is the epitome of good and disciplined and honorable. And so Jesus holds back the last and final commandment to the very end. Because he knows this is the one, if one's going to get you, it's going to be this one. Now let me give you another example. What about the Apostle Paul? So there's the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. The Jew trained by Gamaliel, the one who was a, a Jew of the Jews. He knew the law backwards and forwards. He was trained. He was the master of the law. And Jesus appears to him on the Damascus road. And you all know the story, right? We know what happened. And here's what's interesting. But when Paul, in the book of Romans, goes back and describes what happened to him, in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, what does he say? You can just write Romans 7, 7 on your paper. You know what Romans 7, 7 says? Paul says, well, what is sin? Is the law sin? Certainly not. And Paul said, I wouldn't even know. I wouldn't even have known what sin was had it not been for the law commanding, Thou shalt not covet. What was it that pierced the heart of the perfect legalist, the perfect religious man? the one who dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. What commandment was it that blasted him into oblivion and brought him to his knees of repentance? Thou shalt not covet. The one that today we all just ignore. It's the one Jesus you don't use on the rich young ruler, and it's the one that Paul says brought him to a place of repentance. And we just think, well, you know, covet. I mean, what's the big deal? This is the one of all of them. It's the one. See, coveting undermines life and community because it produces quarrels and conflicts. It creates this... Uh, situation where I'm unhappy, I'm dissatisfied, 
I get consumed with something. I want something. I'm looking for something. And how many times? Have, I mean, this is the, this is the story of, of our modern culture, right? In other words, when, uh, when a young couple desires to have children and they're struggling with infertility, it's a perfect example. It's a wonderful thing to want children, right? If you want children, it's a wonderful gift from God. But have you, do, you, do you know what happens? Because it happens around here all the time. They want children. They can't get pregnant. And guess what happens? Everything in their life goes on hold. Every spiritual principle in their world burns to the ground. The only thing they can think about is how come God won't let us get pregnant? Every sermon they hear, that's all they want to know. Every time you quote a verse to them, that's all they want to know. That, that's all they can think about. And my job as a shepherd is to say, listen, you've got to back off this cliff. See, you've, you've crossed the line here. You've taken a good thing too far, and now it's become an obsession. It's a problem. I see that with people wanting to get married. I see that with people wanting to have children. And then I see that with both of those things played out over and over and over and over after they have those things. Just go to the ball field and watch these ignorant parents. Just watch them. I'm talking about Christian people. They act like fools at the ball field. Why? Something is clearly out of control here. You, how do you not know that we're playing a game? It doesn't matter. They don't know that. They don't know that. Just look at how people live their lives. They go from one obsession to the next obsession to the next obsession to the next obsession. To the, it's ungoverned desire, and it destroys you. And listen, all the time that that's going on, you can be in church every Sunday. You can be involved in your small group. In other words, you look like Paul pre-Damascus Road. You look like the perfect habitual churchgoer. You're like Jonah before the charge to go to Nineveh. It's what it is. And the whole time, this principle is just slaying. It's just slaying you spiritually. And it's like the, it's like the little, you know, it's like getting bit by a fire ant. You're like, how can something that small hurt that stinking bad? This is like the fire ant commandment. It's so no one ever sees it. You don't think anything of it. But when it stings you, it hurts. All right. So the 10th commandment, it's a summary commandment. See, there's a reason why we, we're ending here. There's a reason why this is the way it is. Um, and here's why. Well, first things first. The breaking 
of the other commandments is preceded by coveting. See, you have to violate this commandment prior to the actions of the other commandments. So this is the one that was, if you will, chronologically violated first, yet no one ever sees it. In other words, look at adultery. It gets a lot of, you know, adultery gets a lot of hype, a lot of play. It's a big, you know, explosion. Everybody can see it. It, it, it takes this secret sin and then instantaneously bursts it out publicly. So it's very glamorous in a horrible way, very destructive. So everybody pays attention to it. And no one pays attention to the fact that what happened before the adultery? This, this commandment right here was what was at the center of all of it. The, the fact that the people involved in that sin ignored this. Had they not ignored this, they never would have gotten to that. This is what I'm trying to say. This is the value of this commandment. This commandment, if you can get this commandment into your heart, it will prevent you from violating the other commandments. It'll stop you in your tracks. This desire thing is what's killing us. By the time we get to the stealing and the lying and the false witness and the adultery and all that, I mean, we, we've already, it's already gone. But if you can get this, you won't get to that. Just ask King David. James chapter 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Well, they come from your circle. The word desires. That's where they come from. Or what about sometimes the Bible uses the word lust, like in Galatians 5. It's the flesh that lusts against the spirit. Lust. You know what that is? That's a desire. You know what lust is? Lust is an ungoverned desire. It's not in check. And the flesh lusts. The spirit doesn't do that. You know what the spirit does? The spirit desires in a good and healthy way. The spirit desires where it's good and healthy. And it never, the spirit never lets the desire get over the point where it needs to be. But the flesh, it lives above the line. So wherever we most strongly desire, or whatever we most strongly desire, it's going to determine our behavior. In other words, again, it's the desire that determines the behavior. So what happens is when, we, when, the, when the problem happens, this is, what this, this is what this principle is teaching us. The world runs around, I'm talking about the Christian world, runs around treating all the symptoms and ignoring the disease. The symptoms don't kill you. The disease kills you. So what we do is we fixate on the sins, plural. Sins don't kill you. Sins are a manifestation of a disease called sin. Sin is what kills you. And you can spend all of your life running around trying to stop the sinful behavior 
And it's not going to do any good whatsoever because the sin that is underneath it is what is going to kill you. You have to treat the disease, not the symptom. The disease. That's what this, that's what this whole verse is teaching us. So how does the 10th commandment magnify the glory of God? What does it tell us about God? What information would it give us about his character and his nature? Well, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about, well, what is the opposite? Now we've gone through this. Now you understand what coveting is. So here's my question. What is the opposite of coveting? What's the antonym of that? What is the opposite? Contentment. That is the opposite of coveting. So now you're, now you're starting to see where this line is in this little invisible meter that, that again, nobody can see. So you've got to, here's the scary thing. You have got to, for the most part, manage this yourself. Now, that's not really entirely true because in a perfect world, you would be in, in community such that you would have conversations with people that are open enough to where they would be able to say, bro, I don't know, man. I think you got a little bit of a problem here. Let's talk about this. Like you think about this too much. You talk about this too much. I think you want this in an unhealthy way. But for most people, uh, sadly, that's probably not the case. Then on the other hand, hopefully, you have a marriage such that, I mean, if, you're, if your marriage is anything like my marriage, then, you know, the line gets blurry between who's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit or Lisa. We're really not sure. So she's just busting me up all the time. So she would know. She would know. If I have a desire that's unhealthy, she, she knows. And she would tell me. But, so, so this is the way to think about it, okay? It's a desire that pleases God, all right? It would be a desire that is shaped by contentment. See, as soon as you... As soon as you want something such that, because here's what contentment is, right? As soon as I want something, if I just want something that's good, well, then that's good. But I'm content with what I have, so if I don't get that, it's fine. It's a good thing, so if God wants to give it to me, great. If he doesn't, that's fine. And there's nothing wrong with me wanting it, and there's nothing wrong with me asking God for it, okay? We're still in the... Very, this is all in the spirit, healthy. But where the line is, is now suddenly, without this thing, see, this thing is going to make me happy. This thing is going to make, without this, I'm not content. See, that's the problem. The problem is, is when, and I get it. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's a problem. When the couple looks at me and says, Pastor, 
We want kids, and if we don't have kids, we're not going to be happy. That's a problem. That is a problem. As much as I sympathize with that, that's a problem. And what, what, what is contentment? What is this? Why? Why? What is the line? What is contentment the barometer of? As soon as contentment leaves the equation or discontentment enters the equation, what has happened with the desire? If you have everything, it will not succeed in making your desires disappear. The rich young ruler had everything, and it didn't make his desires disappear. Remember in... uh, in Deuteronomy 8, because a lot of this has to do with Deuteronomy, it's very easy to understand it through. So when God's bringing the children of Israel into the promised land, think about all that you know about them wandering in the wilderness. And I want to remind you of some of the things. This is the language that God would speak to them about the promised land. He says in Deuteronomy 8, God says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, fountains and springs that flow out of the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, a land of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are of iron and whose hills you can dig out copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Now, notice the lengths to which God goes to to say. He didn't just say, hey, look, I got everything you need. Don't worry about it. He didn't just say, look, it's going to be wonderful. Just trust me on that. He said, look, here's everything you need. I've got it covered. Everything. Everything. Handle. Not only... Did they not go in when they had the chance to go in because they didn't believe him? But then when they did go in, what did they do? They go in. God leads them day one to the, this is how God works. You don't start with the easiest test first. You go straight to the most fortified city. You go straight to the most ominous enemy. You go straight to the most devastating odds against you. Straight to Jericho, straight to the place where if ever there's a place that's never going to defeat, be defeated, it's that place. That's where you go day one, and then you march around and play a little band tune, and he drops the walls, collapses everything, and gives it all to you and says, hey, you can, don't worry about it. I'm going to give it all to you. Just make sure that you don't take any of the gold or silver because all of that goes into the treasury of the house of God. And what did they do? You got everything on a silver platter. And you want more. This, it's the killer commandment. It, you know what's irrelevant about coveting? How much you have. Do you know 
that people that are filthy rich and people that are dirt poor covet the same. The same. There's no difference. Absolutely no difference at all. They, dip, they may covet different things, but they covet the same. Spiritually, it's identical. And here's the, here's the thing. See, contentment with what you have is the cure for coveting what you don't have. Now we're starting to get around to why does the Ten Commandments end here? What is this? Why is this at the, at the end? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. You see that? You don't have to wonder what is the opposite of covetousness. Just read the Bible. The Bible's going to tell us. God's going to tell us. He's going to tell us what, if every time God tells you what a problem is, He's going to tell us what the solution is. If you want to understand something, don't look in a dictionary. Just look in the Word of God. He's going to give explanation for it. For, notice the Bible says for, that's the key word, for He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, look, that word for is telling you something. He says, don't covet. Be content. Here's how you do that. Here's the way that's going to happen. Here's the understanding that you're lacking. If you don't want to get destroyed by this principle, if you want to understand this in your heart, if you want to obey this and honor this and live righteously according to this principle, this is how you're going to do it. Four. That's the key. Four. For he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. God doesn't say to be content with what you have because you have what you need. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible, you know the Bible never says that? You know what the Bible does say? The Bible says God will give you what you need. But the Bible never says, hey, you got what you need. It's, he says God will give, but, but God understands us. So, that's not what he says. He says something very specific in Hebrews 13. God says, be content with what you have because you have me. Me. That's the key. All right, so let's pull this thing apart. See, it's like uh, it's like grinding away all of the 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 outer pieces of you know, rock that have attached themselves to this diamond and you're slowly just, you know, polishing everything off and suddenly that glistening diamond in the center is, starts to come to life in your, in your hand. I mean, I think it's a good illustration since we're talking about coveting, right? It's this big, giant, sparkly diamond. 
So coveting is deadly because at the root of our discontentment is dissatisfaction with God. So again, remember, there's a line. I haven't said anything exactly. I've told you all about this line. That contentment is going to be the barometer. The way you know that you've crossed the line is when you're not going to be content without something. That's how you know. But I still haven't defined the line for you. And it is a very definite line for all of us. All right, so let's define it. So our material desires compete with God for supremacy in our heart. You see, we have to gauge trouble by contentment because that's what we understand. The line is there. Me and you just won't. We we are not in tune enough to be able to say, oh, I've crossed the line. We have to use contentment to do that because we're absolutely horrible when it comes to self-evaluating on this level. So where did the Ten Commandments begin? What was the very first commandment nine weeks ago? It's the same place it ends. We, we made a perfect full circle. We started, we went all the way around, and now we've ended in exactly the same place. That's the line. The line is idolatry. But you know what? If, you're, if your goal is to self-evaluate and say, well, I need to evaluate. Now, has this become an idol in my life? That is a disastrous plan. Because me and you are terrible gauges, terrible gauges of our own idolatry. Terrible. So the line is idolatry, but you don't know you crossed the line. You don't use that line. You don't go, oh, there's the line. I'm getting close to the line. Uh-oh, I crossed the line. That's not how it works. Contentment is how you know. Contentment is how you know. When you're no longer content, you have now gotten yourself an idol. That's exactly what's happened. Look at Colossians 3. Paul says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. See that? Ephesians 5. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, Has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God? See that? It's idolatry. So, at the end of the day, the Ten Commandments 
as well as all of Scripture, are calling us to answer the question, who will rule my heart? You see, really, what we've done in 10 weeks is we've spent 10 weeks in this in-depth study of the Ten Commandments, and really what we've done is said, well, you're made for more. Now, whether or not you actually live in the more that you are made of is going to be determined by how you answer that question right there. That question determines whether or not you will experience the more that you were made for. What's going to rule your heart? You see, because, think about it. No matter how bad I want to get married, or how bad I want to have children, or how bad I want whatever it is that I want, so long as I am content in God, and I'm trusting God, And so if God gives it to me, great, that will be wonderful, and it will make me so happy, and I tell God about all that. But I say if God doesn't give it to me, it's going to be okay. I have him. He's with me. Everything's fine. But you and me, here's what we know. We know, all of you in here know, You know exactly what I'm talking about, and you can think of an exact moment in time in your life about something. And you became discontent. You wanted it, and you wanted it to a degree that became unhealthy, and you know that. And you know that it became a stumbling block for you, and it was an idol, and that's the problem. And it doesn't matter what it is. So I ask myself, I mean, trust me, this commandment is, it's, uh, it's magnificent. It's unbelievably uh, spectacular, but it's also dangerous and deadly and sinister. And so as I was thinking about this over the last couple of weeks, you know, just excited about knowing that we were going to be able to finish it in this conversation. And this is such an important passage of Scripture to me. I start. I was just thinking of all the things that I could share with you that, you know, I just want you to realize the, the gravity of, of what I'm saying here. You know what one of the biggest dangers for me is with regards to this commandment? You. You. This church. I have to be careful that I don't want you to grow so bad, that I don't want you to flourish so bad, that if you don't flourish, I won't be okay. That I can't want the church to be something so bad that if it's not something, that's sinister. You know what? Most pastors are oblivious to that. And it will just destroy you on the inside. It's idolatry. But most people would never consider that the church could be idolatry. Or that people, the sheep that you love could be idolatry. Oh, yes, indeed. Oh, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Got to be careful. You got to be content. 
What's going to rule my heart? What's going to rule your heart? Sin is not primarily a behavior. It's a condition of the heart. It's a heart condition. Now use my illustration of the church and of you. If the church is my stumbling block, if the sheep are my stumbling block, what are the symptoms? You can't tell. You you never know. You know why? Because the only thing you see is a hard-working, devoted, committed shepherd that looks like he's doing everything the way he should when in reality, in here, it's idolatry. You don't think this is scary? I'm telling you. So now listen, if you can't see it in my life, and I'm standing up here, what about you? 600 people aren't examining you every day. This could go on for decades in your life, and nobody even knows. Nobody even sees it. And you look, you look on the outside like, oh, look at them. Look how hardworking they are. Look how devoted they are. Look how, when in reality... It's an ungoverned desire. And spiritually, it is destroying you on the inside. Oh, yeah. The Ten Commandments were intended to reach our heart. That's the whole idea here. It's about our heart. See, here's the thing. The thing is, is that the, the moment, like right now, where you start to, you, you feel, you know, pressed in. You feel the, the pressure. You should. It's good. It's healthy. It's wonderful. You know, God's pushing on us a little bit. And then in Ezekiel, where God says, you see, that the key to understanding this, and it should make you just want to, Shout and rejoice and worship God is where God says, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a new heart. I'm going to take your heart of stone out. I'm going to put a heart of flesh in. And I'm going to put my spirit in you. And when I put my spirit in you, it's going to cause you. It's going to cause you to follow my commandments, to desire the things that I desire, to be the person that I, to to experience the more that you were made for. Deuteronomy 5. Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and always keep my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. You see? So, The last question. How did Jesus fulfill the 10th commandment? If he came not to erase the law, but to fulfill the law. 
Because the victory is found in how he fulfills this commandment. That's the victory. Remember I said that all these commandments to a new covenant person with the Spirit of God within, them, within us, it become, they become promises. See? Thou shalt not steal becomes you don't have to steal anymore. Thou shalt not commit adultery becomes why would you commit adultery when you have a relationship with me? I, I'm giving you so much more. It, they become promises because instead of being, that's what Paul said, you're not under the law anymore, but you're under grace. So how did he fulfill it? So beautiful. Here's how he fulfills it. By becoming the rightful object of all our desires. Every desire in my heart and every desire in your heart should be shaped, should be molded, should be understood, should be quantified around. It's a desire made for Jesus. See, think about the things that I don't know what you want tonight. Now, let me explain to you how I protect my heart from idolatry. I long for you to grow spiritually. Because I want you to shine brightly for the glory of God. I long for this church to be healthy and vibrant because I want it to be a testimony for the glory of God. You see, when I shape the desire, when the desires aren't shaped around me, I don't want you to grow to validate me. I don't want the church to grow to validate me. I want it all to be around the desire of Jesus. I want you to desire Jesus more. I want to see Jesus magnified. I want to see Jesus lifted high. I want to see, and it protects us, see? So I can, I can cry, my, I can hold my wife and cry myself to sleep at night because, God, all I want to do is have a child. God, why? And we can just cry ourselves to sleep, begging God to give us a, and, but the whole time saying, but because God, if we, we have you. We have you. And if you give us a child, isn't this in the scripture? And if you give us a child, Lord, I'm going to give it back to you. I'm going to give him or her back to you. And he's going to be a testimony for your glory and your honor and your praise. It's all the heart. Don't you see? It's the heart. Then no matter what happens, so long as I have God, So whatever goes on around you, whatever goes on within you, the key is you have God. He's with you. Let's pray. Father, thanks for these 10 weeks together. Thank you for what you've shown us. Thank you for the simplicity and the complexity that only you can bring to something. There's no human words that, that can even come close to yours.
you can just say a sentence and it can just baffle us with its mystery and the depth and the splendor of what you say. And we've seen that. We've looked at 10 things that we've read a thousand times, that we've memorized as children, that we've taught our children, and God, you've shown us week in and week out that we're just merely scratching the surface of all the depths that you have for us in your word. And so, God, we want to say thank you. And we don't want to just leave tonight and say, well, isn't it great that we have this extra wisdom or knowledge But, Lord, that we're going to live it, we're going to use it, we're going to apply it, that we would understand how important it is for us to monitor our contentment in our life, that we might rid ourselves of idolatry. And we thank you that you've given us a new heart with new desires to shape us. And so though the flesh, it clamors to pull us off course the spirit is there and every day in every moment in every situation and circumstance we have the opportunity to walk in the flesh and not fulfill i mean to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the desire of the flesh so we're grateful thank you that you've done everything for us we're so grateful tonight you're a wonderful father thank you for loving us in a perfect way we give you praise and glory in jesus name amen Amen. I love you. Have a great evening.